when I was in college, a couple of my friends and I got into rock climbing. And so we actually liked it. We took a course because we wanted, you know, to take what is a very dangerous thing, climbing up the side of a sheer rock, and make it as safe as we could. And we learned all about the different skills, things you can learn all about the equipment. And so we got into it and we began to go out to Joshua Tree and, and climb. And rock climbing is kind of this thing about when you're safe, when you're not safe, and how to do it as safe as you can. And so we would go out, and so when you climb, there has to be somebody who lead climbs, and when you start climbing up the rock, person belaying you, you see all the terms that go on, belay, belay on, climb, climbing, and you go up the hill, up the side of this rock, and you're climbing up this sheer cliff, and what you do is you, you feel pretty safe because you put a chalk in or something that you're clipped into, so if you fall, you only fall a couple inches, but then once you start climbing past that piece of protection, you're doubling the distance you'll fall. So if you climb five feet beyond the protection, you fall 10 feet. And once you're 10 feet above the last protection, you're now, if you fall 20 feet, you always get hurt. So you're always, you know, you're safe, then you climb a little bit, then you're not safe, then you put in a chalk, you're safe again. If you climb too far, not safe, so you climb. Somebody has to lead climb. I like that, I like the adventure of it, so I usually was the lead climber, you climb to the top, and at the top, you're at a, you're, it gets scenic, I mean, it gets high, you know, it gets scary, you're like, whoa, and, you know, especially at the top, and when you get to the top, then what you do is you tie yourself into the top of the hill, so if this was the top of the hill, there'd be a rock at it, so imagine those drums just to be an outcrop of rocks, you tie a second rope around that rock, then it would come out, it would tie onto your harness, and then you'd have a rope that would go down to the next climber and you would belay them up. So you'd yell down, on belay, belays on, climbing, climb, and they'd start to climb. Well, I was a college kid and you know, college kids are always messing around with each other. And I had a friend who was a little bit more timid and he was scared a lot when he was climbing. So as he was climbing, if he took a little bit longer than I thought was appropriate, I would start pulling on the rope knock him off the hill and he'd squeal like a girl and it was really fun, you know. <laughs> and so, and there are certain places where you get, while you're climbing up a sheer cliff, it gets really spooky because you're trying to do something and you're holding on to just like a little nurdle and you're standing on a, little, a rock, you know, and, you, and you're, you're moving in funny positions and you, you just get scared, you know. <laughs> Yank him off the hill and, ah, you know, it's squeal. So it's just really fun. But, so you get up there, and so, you know, but when you're the second person climbing, if you fall, you never fall further than like three inches because the person up top's got you. So, you know, you knock them up, but they only, you know, it's like, you're that far, you're safe, right? <laughs> you're not sure. Well, you're not gonna like this story at all. So, so my friend gets up, and so he gets to the top of the mountain, and, you know, you're up there and he's just shaking and he's, because it's, you know, there's some moves in it that, you know, it takes, there's some moments. And so he gets to the top and he thinks he's safe, so he unclips himself from the rope, which is the most unsafe thing that you can do. So while he feels very safe, he's no longer safe. And he's up there and he's talking in excited terms. And while he's not paying attention, I clip him in to the mountain, so now, he is safe because he couldn't fall off if he wanted to because he's attached to the big rock, the drums in the back, he can't go off. And so he's sitting there and he's talking in excited terms and he's like, well, we'd never gone up this big mountain. It was really high. And I go, God, this is really high. I don't think I've ever been this high. Yeah, he goes, you would so die if you fell from here. I go, you would die if you fell from here. And he starts to look over the hill, the, the sheer cliff like this, 
and I push him as hard as I can. And it's not like a grab, push, and just stare you. I mean, like, I shove him, and he's going. And in that split second, I got to see about 50 emotions on his face because he turned, because he's falling off the cliff, and it's, you brought me here to kill me. You wanted to kill me. You've never been my friend. You wanted, it's not just you. Other people must wanted to kill me. How did you plan this? How, why'd you bring here me to die? All of these thoughts, and then he goes, whoop, and right when he gets to the edge, the rope catches him, which causes me to laugh hysterically. But he has... His knees literally buckle in fear, and he has a come-to-Jesus moment. I mean, he becomes a Christian right there. Just, it's evangelism. He actually, he is a pastor today. So he, he really had, he is a pastor in Michigan. And he is my friend, okay? I get, he just, not for a while he wasn't, but he's my friend, because that's like 45 years ago. And so... The question is, you know, when are you safe? So how many of you want to rock climb with me? Because that would be, <laughs> there you go, I'm not going to climb with you. We're in a series titled Jesus in His Own Words. And today we're going to look where Jesus says, I am the gate or the door. And what he's saying by that is, he is the door to the most safe place you can be in your life. To be safe, to be to be restored to your relationship with your heavenly father. It is eternal security. Jesus says, I am the door, which means I am safety. He also says, I am the door, because he's the door to provision and also the door to protection. So we've seen what Jesus has said about himself in other messages. Now we're going to look at the door. So Jesus isn't only the good shepherd, but he's the gate. We're going to look at it today. So we're going to read out of John 10. The context for this is the question that keeps coming up, is Jesus God or not? Is he just a prophet? If he is, is he a miracle worker, a great teacher? Or is he God? Is he the Messiah? He clearly answers the question because by the end, we won't read it, but for extra credit, you can read chapter 10, and you'll see that some people wanted to kill Jesus because he was claiming to be God. There was no mistake what Jesus is claiming about himself. He is the Messiah. Now, in the first verses in John 10, he says, and he gives an illustration. The crowd doesn't understand it. So Jesus says very clearly what he's saying. So look at John 10. Those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant. So he explained it to them. So he's now explaining the illustration we didn't read. He said, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Second time, those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely. They will find good pastures. The thieves' purpose is to steal to kill and destroy, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life, or some of your translations would say an abundant life. Here, two times he says, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. Yes, I am the gate. When he uses the I am, as we've talked before in the other messages, I am was the covenant name for God. It's the name God revealed to Moses when he delivered his people out of the slavery of Egypt. I am. I am what you're not. I am God. You're not. I am what you need. He is the great I am. So when, they, when Jesus says that, the people listening to him clearly understand 
what Jesus is claiming. And so he says, I am the gate, which seems a little confusing to us because we don't live in the first century. But to those people, they had a very clear picture of what it meant. He says, I am the gate for ultimately for salvation, for protection, and also for green pastures. He says, yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. Now the people listening to Jesus had a clear picture that would spring into their minds that do not spring into any of our mind. Every day they would see little villages, houses that were built out of rock, and right next to these houses, attached to some of them, was a little courtyard. There was a high rock wall with thickets at the top so that thieves could not come over the top, and it had one entrance, a gate. Or in a, in a larger village, there would be a larger pen, a sheep pen, so that would be for just one sheep pen, but there'd be a larger one for many flocks. Same thing, rock wall, thickets on the top with just one entrance. And so Jesus, when the people heard it, immediately they would get the idea, Jesus is the gate. He is the entrance to the safe place for sheep, a place of protection. And so Jesus is saying, you will be saved. And he's talking about salvation, not just saved for a moment, but it is eternal, eternal security. You will be saved forever. And Jesus doesn't say, I'm a gate. He says, I am the gate, the one and only. It's an exclusive gate. And typically when people hear this, you know, in church or even not in church, or a Christian says that Jesus is the way, he's the only way, or he's the gate, the door, the name, the only name that you can be saved. People have two responses. They go, why? Why is it so exclusive? Why is Jesus the only way? And why do I need to be saved? I'm fine, really. My job's fine. My life's fine. I'm fine. I'm fine with God. But the truth is, you're not fine. No one's fine. And it doesn't take you five minutes looking and watching the news to realize things are not fine. We live in a broken world. You see hatred and jealousy and wars and the threat of wars. Uh, corruption, injustice, racism, sexism, and oppression. And the world that we live in is broken. No one thinks this world's fine. It's broken. And it's not just the world out there. The reality is we are broken people. And the reason that we're broken wasn't always this way. When we were created, we lived in loving relationship with God. But we were created with a free will and we decided we wanted life on our own terms. And we separated ourselves from the only source of life and love there is in the universe, God. And because of our selfishness and self-centeredness, we damaged everything. So all of the evil that we see in the world is because of our collective selfishness together. Not just one, but all of our selfishness. We damaged our relationship with God, with each other and ourselves. But what's amazing is that God loved us too much to leave us that way. So God came to this world in the person of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago to rescue us. And he knew the only way to make us safe, to provide a safe place for us, is to take the disease that had infected us and let it infect him. So he, he took our sin, our brokenness, and he went to the cross and he died the death that we were already dying so that he could restore us to our relationship with our Heavenly Father. He could forgive us and he is the gate by which we all have to go through to be saved, to be rescued, to have eternal security because we have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. 
And people go, but why is Jesus the only way? Because Jesus is the only one, because he was God, who could die for your sins. And people go, that's so exclusive. It's not exclusive. It's the most inclusive. Because Jesus did for everyone what no one could do. If it was something that we could do for ourselves, some of us would be better at it than others and it wouldn't be fair. So Jesus did it and he says, everyone who believes in me will be safe. I am the door, I am the gate, and all who believe in me, trust in me, their relationship with their heavenly father is restored. You are safe. You are forgiven. You are safe. You are loved. You are safe. But it doesn't just end there. Not only does he create a place of safety where we are loved and secure, and even death cannot take that away. This, he's also the gate for sheep to enter so they can have good pastures and also the abundant life. He says in John 10, yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will come and go freely and find good pastures. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying abundant life. Not only does Jesus save us, but he gives us an abundant life. It isn't just what we need. He gives beyond what we can even ask or imagine. It is a full life, a satisfying life. So Jesus as a gate, he goes, I open the door so that you can have a satisfying life, a rich life. And not just that, sheep weren't meant just to stay in a pen. So he is the door that lets them go out to good pastures, to green pastures. And anyone hearing that and have any kind of working knowledge of the Bible would immediately think of Psalm 23, where it says, the Lord is my shepherd, and so I have everything I want. He leads me out into green pastures by still waters. He restores my soul. And Jesus is saying, I'm the gate. I am the gate where I lead you into. I open the door for green pastures. I guide you in the paths of righteousness. And even in the most challenging moments of life, I am with you, like we sang and talk about during the worship time. And so Jesus is uh, our salvation. He, he saves us. He takes us to a safe place. Not only that, he is the gate that opens the door to green pastures, to good pastures, to the abundant life. And he also is the gate by which he protects us. Look at what he says. I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of the sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. There are threats. There are thieves and robbers. And these people understood it because sheep were valuable and people would try to steal them. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. The thief's purpose is to steal, to kill, and destroy. And in Jesus' day, just like today, there are many people who are would-be messiahs, many people who are leaders and religious leaders that promise safety, they promise security, they promise a life of abundance, and it happens in our world today, and Jesus understands the threat. The world will promise security if you just have enough money, and it says if you just trust in that, or trust in your job, if you trust in these false teachings, but they're false promises that can't deliver the security that you need, the abundance that you're looking for, the safe place that you need. So Jesus is the one who protects us because his focus is on the sheep. And they would have a great picture of this because at night, shepherds would lay down on the ground right at that gate. And so the sheep at night could not wander away 
and get hurt. They couldn't leave the safety of the pen because the shepherd was there and no one could come in and steal the sheep because he was right there. And it's a powerful picture of who Jesus is. He is the one who protects you. And so Jesus is the one who provides the safety for you in your life so that you can have eternal safety, a safe place. Your relationship with God is restored. He is the one who opens the doors for opportunities for you to have green pastures, to have an abundant life. And he is the one that protects you. But not only that, that's what Jesus does. Look at what sheep do. And so on your outlines, you can see sheep embrace Jesus's love. It says the sheep recognize his voice. What is the defining quality of a Jesus follower? The sheep recognize his voice. Recognize his voice is what I'm looking for. What is the defining quality of a Jesus follower? That's right. If you, if you know Jesus, if you believed in Jesus, the defining quality of a person who knows Jesus is they recognize. recognize his voice. And they come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Sheep know the shepherd's uh, voice. So if you came to a larger pen, there was multiple flocks in there. A shepherd could literally come to the edge of the, the pen and he could call them out and his sheep would come out. And he knew each one by name. Jesus knows you. He knows your name. You recognize his voice and you follow him. You embrace his love. And then it goes on. They follow him because they know his voice. They don't follow a stranger. They will run from the stranger because they don't know his voice. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. And so they follow this. The, and we see this. We know the voice of the people that we love. I have four daughter-in-laws. I have nine grandchildren. When they all show up at our house at once, it is amazingly wonderful and incredibly chaotic. It is absolutely the loudest thing you've ever heard in your, you know, kids just running around, bouncing off the walls, and it is too much fun. And what's amazing is these kids are screaming and doing all sorts of fun stuff, and you will hear all of a sudden one child scream, and I will look over at the four daughter-in-laws, and not one of them moves, because <laughs> they understand that scream is not from a hurt child, that's just a scream. And then some, it'll go on, and then not three minutes later, you will hear, in my mind, what is the same scream, and immediately, three daughter-in-laws are looking at one, and that one is already up and moving, because she knows that's her child, and that is a scream of pain, and she is running to help that child. The defining quality of a Jesus follower is they, they recognize his voice. I mean, you know it, and you understand it, and when Jesus speaks, you know that it speaks of love and kindness, and he's affirming you, and encouraging you, and exhorting you. We recognize his voice, just like a mother recognizes the cry of her child. And so, my greatest desire for you is that you would know Jesus' voice, because that's what it means. You'd know his voice, and you would follow him, and we know how God speaks. Uh, you go, I mean, I've been taught this all through my life in the church. How does God speak most clearly? It's on your outline. You don't have to guess. How does God speak most clearly? Through his word, through his text. And so in his text, 
He teaches us truth to live by, gives us values, talks about your dating, he teaches you about dating, teaches about marriage, how to have a relationship, how, about raising kids, truth that shapes your life. Second way that God speaks to us, Jesus speaks to us is through prayers, just a spiritual conversation that you have with your heavenly father and then through his Holy Spirit, he leads us, he says, into all truth. And then only that, but in godly counsel. So you need to be connected with other godly people. And that's why we set up life groups. But the fifth way that he speaks is by doors. By opening and closing doors. Jesus, Revelation says that Jesus has the key to every door. And so in life, there are doors that open and close. And literally, when we say, God, open that door, we're doing something that we've been encouraged to do because he opens doors and he only opens good doors and loving doors. And so this is how it works. The excitement builds. I can sense it, right? You've got it. You listen to God's voice. You, or Jesus' voice, you hear his voice and you follow. And you say, okay, would you open a door? You're in a job you don't like. You go, would you open a door to a new job, a challenging job? And he can and does often. You say, God, would you open a door to more responsibility? And he holds the key to that, to opportunities. He holds the key to those doors, to a relationship. Maybe you're single and you see him and he's so handsome or she so cute. And you're saying, God, would you open the door to that relationship? Some of you want a child and you're saying, God, would you open the door so that I could be a parent? Uh, sometimes we need a door open for healing. Jesus is the one who opens and closes doors of opportunities, not just for salvation, but he opens the door to this abundant life that we want, uh, that he wants to provide for us. And there are moments in our life that are just staggeringly amazing that I've been, I, you know, I see in people's life, in my own life, where they're stuck or they're not able to move forward and they pray and they're saying, God, would you open a door? And he does. And when he does, it is absolutely spectacular. You think, I never could have dreamed an opportunity that great, that it would be that unique, that was fit them so wonderful or fit me so perfectly. You go, Jesus opens doors. And we love it when he opens doors, right? So we hear his voice, we follow, and he opens doors. And there's lots of doors that we want closed and we want to stay closed, right? What are doors that you want closed? How many of you want to be fired, right? You're going, no, just keep that door closed, right? I don't want that. How many of you want the door of suffering opened up? We don't want that door. Say, no, you could keep that door closed. I don't want that door suffering. I don't want cancer. I don't want a broken marriage. There's lots of doors that we want closed. And so when we hear truth like this, our response too often tends to go, all right, this is great. Jesus speaks, I follow, he opens doors, and my life is good all the time. <laughs> Except for when it's not. Because while that is very true, there are moments in life that we hear God's voice, and we follow, and a door is open, and we find ourselves in places of incredible pain and we wonder was Jesus not paying attention did he not understand what was behind door number two it's like you know it's like well all the doors this is the door that he opened and you're supposed to be good and it gets very confusing because we think if we do what's right then our life is always up and to the right and the bible says that it says it all the time 
you look confused, and you should be, because the Bible does not say that. <laughs> so I'm going to read a passage of scripture to you, and there's two kinds of people, two groups of people. Which group do you want to be in? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Japheth, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms. They ruled with justice and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouth of lions, quenched the flames of the fire. They escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned into strength. Yeah, they became strong in battle and put whole armies to fight. Women received their loved ones back again from, the, from death. Woo! That's the group I want to be in. But others, it's right there in the Bible, were tortured refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. Some were jeered at. Their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prison, died by stoning, sawn in half, killed with the sword, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world. Wandering over deserts, mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. How many want to be in group two? You go, Wait a second. I'm in church. You're saying I'm all in for hearing Jesus' voice and following him, but I want everything to be good and up and to the right. Now, we know that Jesus is the gate and that he opens the door to safety and to restored relationship with our Heavenly Father, which opens the door so that broken relationships can be healed with other people. We know that he opens the door to good pastures and to the abundant life. We know that he protects us. But we also know that we live in a broken and fallen world. We do not say, God opened the door so that I could have cancer, so that I could learn to trust him. We don't say that. Because God does not open the door for cancer. God does not give people cancer. Our broken, fallen world and the diseases of this world come to us because of our sin. Not because we sinned individually, but because of our collective sin. And there is evil and there is brokenness in this world. And yet, even sometimes when some get cancer, God opens the door so some are healed. And some are not. And why does God heal some and not others? I could never explain that and neither could anyone else in this world. And it shouldn't surprise us that I can't explain and you can't understand God, who is infinite, and we are finite. It shouldn't surprise us that God's ways are higher than our ways, that God's thoughts are beyond our thoughts, and there are things that we will never understand about God. And that's not a cop-out. It just simply makes sense. We cannot understand everything about God. But we know that God loves us and cares for us. And the reason that we know it is because of Jesus, because even though we live in a broken and fallen world that is of our own making, because of our own selfishness, God did not stay distant and far, but Jesus entered into our world of suffering and he suffers with us. And so matter, no matter how much pain we are in, we would never say God doesn't care because God has already proven that he cares and he is with us because he came in the person of Jesus. And not only that, he became a victim of suffering and he died so that we could have safety in his name. And not only this, 
He says that in all things, God is able to work all things together for good to those who love him. And what it says is that God is so powerful, even though we live in a broken and fallen world, and evil happens, God doesn't call bad things good. They're bad things. But God is able to work even in bad things and bring about good. He is that powerful. And we know this. And so we know that Jesus opens and closes doors. He never opens a bad door. But there is evil and there's brokenness and there are bad doors that are open. And so there are moments in our life that are just crushing and painful. To get it, it's confusing. And you think, I think that's why Kenton needed to move on and we need a younger guy because he's lost his mind right here. <laughs> so we listen and we follow. And Jesus is committed to protecting us and yet sometimes there's pain and sadness and cancer and there's broken marriages and there's lost jobs and we lose loved ones, and we live in the high heat reality of life. And while I can't tell you why it happens, I can tell you how you are to live in the most challenging moments in your life. And the reason that I can is because as God put his word together, he recorded events through history that gave us principles to live by. And I'm gonna tell you a story that is in the Bible that's an event out of history and in it, it will tell you, one is you'll never forget this story. And most importantly, it will tell you how you are to react and the only way to truly be safe in the high heat reality moments of life. It is a story found in Daniel chapter 3 of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It is a time when God's people didn't trust God. For 300 years, God said, trust me, trust me. If you don't trust me, you're going to end up living, trusting in something else. They trusted in everything but God. So God says, all right, you're going to suffer the consequence. You're, this is what happens when you don't trust me. And so a foreign army came in, conquered the, God's people, and took them into captivity. It was a Babylonian empire that you learned about in history. Nebuchadnezzar was the king. He took a bunch of captives away from... Uh, took them to uh, the kingdom in Babylon. And so they were there. And these young men in their 20s were a part of the group that were taken there. Nebuchadnezzar was an egocentric king, like most kings become. And as a result, he thought the best way to unify the people would be to make them all worship him because he had conquered the world and he is the one who brought safety and the people should worship him and that would be a way to unite people. So he built this 90-foot golden statue of himself and he was going to have kind of an, you know, a, a moment. So he's creating kind of like the opening moment in the Olympics where a big orchestra, big moment, then the you know, reveal of the statue. And when that happened, he wanted all the people in the land to bow down and to worship this idol, recognizing that because he thought he was God. He was the one who controlled. He was the one who provided safety. He was the one who protected the people. And the people were willing to do it, mostly because they, they didn't believe Nebuchadnezzar was a, was a god. They just didn't believe anything else. So they were happy to do it. And so this moment comes up, and every you know, big moment, big orchestra, big crescendo, reveal of the big giant statue, and Everyone bows down except for three people. So you can imagine everybody on their hands and knees bowing down except for three. Pretty easy to identify these three guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And the king is mad beyond, you know, he's just lost his mind. And he, he goes, who was it that did it? And it says it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he knows these three guys because he's already had an incident with them. They've proven themselves to be unique, to be wise. They show a lot of promise and he has given them favor. And so he is really ticked at them. And so he looks at him and he says, did you not understand what I told us? Pretty easy, big sound, music, trumpets, everybody bows down, bow down. And he says to him this in Daniel 3, I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue that I've made. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace, the furnace that I used to build this big thing and melt down the metal, big industrial furnace, not a little oven, big thing. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? So this guy is the ruler of the known world. He is ticked at them and he says, you're going to bow down and worship me or I'm going to throw you into this giant furnace that is, you know, was used to make bricks, used to, you know, melt this metal, big, big furnace. And what's amazing is this is a high heat moment of reality. And, you know, these three guys say to him, we don't need a second chance. You don't need to go through the whole drum roll and, you know, wind up the band again. We're not bowing down. And they say to us, God records this because this is the way in the most challenging moments of life that we go through the most difficult things in life, which is this double-fisted faith. Look at what they say. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God who we serve is able to save us and he will rescue us from your power. He's, they say that to the most powerful man in the world at the time. Our God is able to save us from you and this power, this powerful faith. But they don't just stop there. They go on and say, but even if he doesn't, it might not go the way we plan and we might get burned up. It might not look good for us, but even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, double-fisted faith, we will never let go of our God. We will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. That is amazing and that is double-fisted faith. Our God is able to save us, to rescue us. He can heal my broken marriage. He can save me. He can heal me from cancer. He can give me a new job. God can rescue. He can break this addiction. God can do this. Yeah, but even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, it doesn't mean that he's not God. It does not mean that he's not working. Just because I can't see it and I can't make sense of it doesn't mean he's not in control and I will hold on to him. And they had every reason to compromise. They were young men in their 20s. They were taken into captivity. Everybody else, every, all the other people and God's people, they all bowed down. None of, but no one else stood up. And none of their prayers were answered. I mean, wouldn't you have been praying some prayers? I mean, it took a while to build the gold statue. They all knew what was going to happen. And, you know, what would you pray? God, transfer us out of this town. Transfer us. Give us a transfer. Daniel, who's the book's named after, he got transferred. He wasn't there. He didn't bow down. He wasn't in the city at the time. God, can you just, you know, transfer us? Move us to a different place. God, do it. But God didn't open that door. He could have said, you know, God, uh, don't let it come to this point. 
you know, make other people stand up with us so that when it, they about down, you know, make thousands. Not, but God didn't open that door. He could have, you know, they said, you know, God, uh, when everybody bows down, just blind the people so they don't see us. So you just don't, God had done things like that. So God would do that. He prayed that prayer, but he didn't seem to open up that prayer. He said, well, you know, maybe Nebuchadnezzar will just become uniquely gracious and he'll say, yeah, everybody but you three, okay. But he didn't do that. And so it didn't happen. And yet these people, they, these three 20-something stand and just go, our God is able, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to do it. And so Nebuchadnezzar becomes so infuriated, he has the furnace seven times hotter than it's ever been lit before. He gets the guards to tie him up. They're tied up in ropes. The guard, I mean, in ropes. The guards take him over to throw him in the furnace. The, it's so hot, the guards die throwing them into the furnace. They're thrown into the furnace. Immediately the ropes are burned, and they're in the furnace, and they, they don't burn. And they're looking at each other, and you can imagine, they're going, this is going to hurt, this is going to hurt. And then they're standing there going, my gosh, we're in the fire. We're not being burned up. Your life is changed when you're thrown in a fire and you don't get burned up. <laughs> you're never the same. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king, is standing there, and he's looking, and he says, didn't we throw three people in? Why do I see four? And in the furnace, who do they meet? They meet Jesus. They meet God. There's a moment. God, I thought we were so afraid. I thought you'd deliver us. I thought you'd close us. I thought you'd blind the people's eyes. But we got thrown in here, and I was so afraid we were going to die. But we said you could, but I didn't think it was going to be like this. But you saved us. And they're all three talking at the same time, and they're having it. And so, I mean, it's amazing. And Nebuchadnezzar calls them out, and he says, I'm going to believe in your God. It's a moment. So here's the question. When are you safe? When are you safe? When you have enough money? When you have a secure job, when things are comfortable, when there isn't a lot of heat in your life, relationships are going easy, when are you safe? The guards thought they were safe and they died. Shadrach, me, and Shaq and Abednego, they're getting thrown in the fire and they were totally safe. When are you safe? I'm going to tell you when you're safe. When you hear the voice of your Savior, and you follow him, and even when you find yourself in the most painful moments in life, you live with double-fisted faith, and you encourage, say, my God is able. He can heal. He can rescue. He can save he can break this addiction. He can heal my marriage. He can rescue my wayward children. My God can save. My God can heal. He is able. But even if he doesn't, it doesn't mean that he's not God. And just because I can't see it and he doesn't do it the way that I want to, it doesn't mean that he's not God and I am going to hold on to him because there's nothing else that I've got that I can hold on to. <laughs> Timmy Timmons, young man, he grew up in our church as a child, uh, became a worship leader in our church. Right after he got married, he got cancer. And he's lived with cancer. He, he, has been, he has prayed for healing 
for cancer, 20 years. I have prayed with him for healing and I have prayed with him this prayer. God, you are able to heal. We've seen you heal. We know you can heal. God, you're a good God. We know you want. But even if you don't, we know that you are good, you are loving, and we will hold on to you. And that became powerful to him. It was so powerful, he wrote a song. He wrote a song that captures it. And this song is going to be sung over you because God has things that he wants to say to you right now in your life. Because there are some of you that your world is breaking apart and you don't know why it's happening and no one can explain it to you because you with all your heart have been trying to hold on to God. You've been following him. You've done what's right. You haven't failed him. It's not something that you have done. And all you have is to say, God is able. But even if he doesn't, I'm going to hold on to him. And this song is so powerful because it puts into music the very things that God wants you to know. So as they sing over you, listen to your Savior's voice. What is it that he wants to say to you this morning?
all stand and sing this declaration together. For we trust in our God, and through His unfailing love, we will not be shaken. We will not be shaken. We will not be shaken. Just you sing it. Sing it over your heart, your life. For we with me. I want you to hold out your hands like this. I want you to clench one fist and say, God is able. Say it. God is able. He can heal. He can rescue. He can provide. He can do whatever it is you need. Clench your second fist. But even if he doesn't. Say it. But even if he doesn't, I'm not going to let go. I'm not going to let go. That is the way we go through the most challenging moments of life. Maybe today you need to be prayed with. There's a team of people that meet over by these lights. They will pray that double-fisted prayer with you. God is able, but even if. Or if you need to be prayed for healing, you go, the elders will pray with you. It is God's way for you to face the high heat moments of life. Hold your hands out like this and receive God's blessing. Father, look at your children. They love you. Would you bless them and keep them, hold them fast with your love? Would you cause your face to shine upon them and be gracious to them? Would you lift up the light of your countenance? Would you turn your attention towards them? And when they cry out, would you rescue and save and deliver? And God, would you give them your peace? We ask in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in God's grace. You have a great day.